how it's changing is that in the old days, you think of, you know, sales bros like Corp, <laughs> um, of traditional salespeople. The last of the Brohicans. <laughs> We're fighting, fighting the good Ooh. fight. You know, you're reaching out, steak and wine dinners, the golf, um, sort of kidding, sort of not. Finger gunning. Yeah, you know. finger gunning. Um, and now it's really more about you, the product can sell itself in the beginning, get users onboarded and activated, and then sales can engage when there's more opportunity. I'll be honest, I still don't fully believe you, but hey, we'll take your word for it. That's some royalty-free shit, people. That's what we do. Welcome to another edition of Beyond Quota, the podcast. I'm your host, Puyan. As always, with uh, my co-host, Corp. And today we are joined by the one and only co-founder of Pocus, Alexa Grable. Maybe we should start this off by... uh, diving into how you two know each other. We met We met at this small little, we'll call it like a top 10 business school in uh, the South Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area. It's called Stanford. They, their mascot's a tree. Um, and what, we took like two classes together, three classes. And there was like, at one point, she claimed to me that she was in sales. And I laughed with her, at her. Because then I found out it was sales operations. Yes. And then I laughed at her. And we've been friends ever since. <laughs> very serious. It's very serious stuff. And so, yeah, you were, uh, Alexa was a year below me. Just to stand out in class, always participating, just like kind of the teacher's pet, a little bit of a tryhard. Um, always sat at the front, like raising her hand all the time. I was like, oh my God, here she goes again. And it was good because then I didn't have to talk. So, you know. Ross, if I remember correctly, um, you and I were both in the back row just hoping we didn't get cold called. All right. That's the truth. <laughs> that's the actual truth. But yeah, because we we're sales and sales ops and everyone else was, you know, banking and consulting, we always had the best answers, even if we weren't right. listening. Right. Because we actually did shit. So yeah. We could actually contribute to the conversation. So, yeah, that's how it actually went. Absolutely not a teacher's pet. Um, and, yeah, I think we both sat there and we're like, when is this, when is this over? Um, but we did contribute. We learned a lot. We grew, we graduated and, uh, now she's raised a bajillion dollars and I'm sitting here in a Santa hat. So I think, you know, we're both kind of <laughs> separate, separate, but equal things, separate, but equal. I think. Is this know, how all your podcasts go? More or less. Basically. <laughs> Take us through the beginning professionally, like what did you think you were going to do as a kid (laughs) and when did those dreams die? And then what did you end up doing? And then we'll progress from there. Okay. I can, uh, I can start there, but before I need to know what you wanted to be when you were a kid, was it always a sales bro? No, it was always a major league baseball player. I didn't care about anything but baseball until I was 23, 24, 24, nine, 29. I was 20. Yeah. 20, 23 and I realized I wasn't going to make it. So I decided to retire from my illustrious minor league career where I was paid uh, $700 a month. So my background, what did I want to be? I feel like you're just going to make a million comments on this, Ross. But I actually wanted to be a dancer and tried to convince my parents to let me go to high school and then college to study dance. 
and do it as my profession. And they both um, said no nicely. Um, but no, that is what I wanted to be. And then I realized I went a total 360 and realized I loved math and science and then became an engineer undergrad. <laughs> um, and then there's a wow. lot of steps there, but I'll let you get all of your comments out on that. And then I'll move into the real stuff. Okay. So, I mean, good thing TikTok is around now, right? Because now you can, <laughs> now anyone can be a professional dancer. If yeah. You, you know, try hard enough. So let's talk about the relationship between you and your parents and where it <laughs> fractured. Uh, was that like right after they told you absolutely not? Or were you there know, signs? I blame them, but I really think the inner nerd in me, it sounds cooler to blame your parents, but I was also kind of like, I like computer science, you know? So it was two very opposite things. Nerd alert. Right. Nerd alert. Um, so yeah, let's get past, you know, my 19 year old self. Can we, can we maybe... Well, no, I think it's important because it kind of shapes, kind of shapes who we are, at least subconsciously. I think there's very little correlation in business school attentiveness and success. In fact, it might even be like a correlation in the opposite of the opposite, which we call people, inverse. An inverse correlation, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, we learned that in uh, decisions and data. Is that what D and D stood for? <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> See, the D&D I came from was Dungeons and Dragons, but then when there was a class about it and it was nothing about Dungeons and Dragons, I was like, okay, this, is, this is really stupid and dumb and boring. When are we getting to the dungeon part? We, I and I just went to a class. We taught a class in sales. We got, we got invited to the sales class before you did. How does that make you feel? That's what I learned in touchy-feely, to ask you how did that make you feel? How'd that land on you? That's upsetting. It's disgusting, frankly. It's <laughs> disgusting. of corpse face right there. No one... <laughs> It's, I'm too much of a liability to bring in there because I'm going to say it how it is. They bring in sales ops to talk about sales. Like, like that isn't that just society? Product isn't that just society? Sales. Okay, if they're talking about product led sales, fine, fine, because fine. that's like in theory, in like practice, it's not sales in the traditional sense of sales where people are selling stuff. It's products. So like that makes that makes sense. Yeah, I, I wouldn't go in there and talk about that. I don't know shit about that. I mean, I know some stuff, but I wouldn't be able to talk to it about it in a class. And so when you graduated, you were like, all right, finally. Time to go to KPMG. Time to go <laughs> to KPMG. That sounds fulfilling and fun. What the hell does a consultant do? Like, like true, like if you're like to boil it down, it's like we go look at companies, we read their balance, we read like their financials, and then we do like, can you just walk me like a quick step-by-step -step of like what the hell consultants do? I, I genuinely think most people have no idea, including myself. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different types types of consultants, right? Like you can be operations, you can be strategic, you can be just going in there and figuring out how many people we need to fire. You can be going out and doing some M&A work. I was really, really specific where I was doing strategic consulting for autonomous vehicles. So I was at Ford researching whether they should make an acquisition of a self-driving car startup and researching that market and predicting where it would be in the next five years. So it's way more research, strategy, interviewing folks that are experts in the space, putting together predictions, putting together financial models. So it's some stuff that's translatable to say like the 2% of what you do in a startup when you have to say, okay, let's zoom out, think big picture, get a lot of data points, talk to as many experts in the space. But then you kind of hand it over to the the client. Um, that's where there's a huge difference between that and startups. Because startups, you say, all right, that's the 2%. And then you spend 98% actually executing it. Let's let's talk about building out a sales ops function. Because I think most people who listen to this are obviously like in sales. And all of us have no Maybe idea what's behind the curtain. 
Yeah. Like what the hell goes on behind the curtain? Like who the hell are they? Why are they doing what they do? And why are they telling me what quota should be? Um, so can you just talk about like, what is building a sales ops engine? Yeah. And what, what like drew you to that role too, coming from KPMG? Why'd you want to go into sales ops instead of being, you know, top right. performer? Being an absolute savage. Yeah. It's funny. I think now, especially when I went to business school and everyone was in all these other very fancy schmancy roles and product and strategy. Um, it was very random. I learned at the time that I was coming from sales ops. Um, but going in, leaving KPMG, I was looking for a company that I really believed in the mission. I know, disgusting, Ross. Um, and really loved the people early stage enough where I could really get in and build. Data Miner had an incredible mission and like literally was saving lives every single day. Um, and I came in, there was a VP of sales ops at the time and myself. Um, there was just a ton of opportunity. It was more than sales ops. It was like, you know, what does that strategy word mean? But it was really like come in, build, fix things on the revenue side of the world. Um, so everything from sales comp to building tooling and systems and Salesforce integrating with Looker and everything from customer segmentation to going up market enterprise. So it was really broader revenue strategy and operations and touching a little bit of everything. Um, so that was exciting for me. Um, and then really, uh, my boss ended up leaving like the first week. So I got direct reporting into what did the, you do? Um, you know, I just cried. Why did you make your boss leave? I'm a terrible person, Ross. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. No, I actually think this was one of the biggest learnings I had where you're kind of junior in your career and that stuff happens and you can go to one of two ways. You can get really like freaked out and not know what to do, or you can step into the opportunity and just go with it. Be and freaked so, out and then step into the opportunity. Or both. Yeah. Why not yeah. a little bit of both? Um, right. As long as it's like 80, 20, um, yeah. maybe 90, 10. Um, and so... I then got the opportunity to report to like the president at the time who was really leading everything revenue. Um, so it was a lot more working with the executive team, fixing different problems throughout the organization. And then at that time, I have like a running list of just things that I saw. So you're alluding to a few things around revenue operations, which we can talk about that here in a moment. But can you just give the people at home a quick, like how the hell is quota calculated? Like. What do, what do people do? Is it a guess? Is it a financial matter? Like what, you know, how are they doing this thing? It depends on the organization. Um, and a lot of it, I mean, you know, it's art and science, right? Like you have, I mean, of course, like sales, obviously. You have some data available of what you've hit previously and what you think you can hit in terms of revenue targets the next year, three years, five years conversations with the board, conversations with your executive team. Here is what we think is achievable as a company. And then this is broken down what we've seen as sales rep productivity over the past quarter, two quarters, three quarters, and then use that to inform. I'll say um, it's never perfect and it's constantly iterating. I feel like sales comp and pricing are those two things that will just never be set in stone. It's something that consistently changes as you build new product features, test different markets to go after, expand your TAM, whatever that is, going up market, going down market to self-serve. It's just one of those things that it, it leans more art than science sometimes. What do you think, like when you guys are in those discussions, is there a number that organizations typically say, we want this many reps, with this percentage of reps to hit quota? I've seen everything and I'm figuring that out for my own organization right now. 
Um, I think it also depends on the stage of company that you're at. If you're a Salesforce by now, you have a number that you know, you have a playbook to run. Like there is a formula. If you are series A, B, C, um, I think you're constantly trying to get to the next stage of product market fit. And what that means is there's going to be some ambiguity with reps around what is possible and how many of them will hit it. Um, I know I'm not giving you a straight answer because I don't think there is one. But are you saying that therefore more reps as you mature will hit quota or you're just saying more reps that that consistency line will just kind of even out a little bit more? Like you don't know, like you can't say, oh, it's 70, 60, 50% down to like Salesforce, which is like hopefully 70 in my mind. You'll have more insight into what is possible and like have more numbers and inputs into the model that makes sense. It's up to the executive team. Like it's also the mindset of some people like setting OKRs that are like way out of reach. So people can always be striving. Whereas other leaders say, you know, we want to set something that's attainable that we can align through the executive team board and all the ICs in the company. It's like totally a mindset of how executives and leaderships want to run their organization. Where do you fall in that? Are you giving your, uh, your reps a unattainable OKRs or? Yeah, it's something we've been thinking about a lot. Um, so we're building up the initial sales team right now. Um, and what I am searching for is folks that are actually optimizing more for, so there's three buckets. There's, you can have cash, you can have incentive commission, or you can have equity. And I'm going straight looking for folks that are get very excited about equity actually at this stage. I mean, we're series a, we're early on, like people who want to come in for the long-term build, like really feel like an owner, um, rather than someone that's just here for like a quick cash payout and then leave the next year. So everyone that's Ross not is- pro. Uh-huh. Yeah, Ross's three favorite words. Equity. Ooh, <laughs> nothing gets me jacked up like equity. You know, so you ready uh, to do the tonal? Yeah, well, almost as yeah. much as the tonal. How would you describe uh, RevOps? Is RevOps sales ops? Is RevOps a CEO of? You know, is RevOps like having another CEO at the company? Is it? Shouldn't RevOps be your first hire? I mean, assuming assuming like RevOps is, is as important as they talk about themselves. To me, it goes like founding team, RevOps, marketing, HR, legal. You have HR in the early days? Then That's sales. Then sales. You got to bring sales in like at the end, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, so <laughs> it's interesting. I was just at coffee yesterday with the head of ops and really head of RevOps at Ramp, who's incredible. And we were talking about what does RevOps oversee now and um, have been having a lot of these conversations, obviously, because RevOps is our buyer at Pocus. And um, it's really interesting how it's evolved even four years ago since when I was in sales ops, because you have sales ops, you have marketing ops. And now I see a lot like BI and analytics also falling under that. And then you have the traditional like Salesforce admin, which used to be like everything. Like when you thought of sales ops, a lot of people just thought of people who are really good at Salesforce. And now there's a lot under it across I've even seen go-to-market ops as a role. Like we're working closely with the go-to-market strategy and ops team at Miro. Um, and so it's everything from the more operational things of setting up Salesforce, right? And making sure your sales process is um, operationalized and thinking about things like sales comp and quotas, but then it's all other strategic elements as well that inform sales, marketing, customer success. Um, so I, 
it's definitely evolving. Also, something that's really interesting is usually RevOps would or sales ops folks would report up to a sales leader. Like it would be their go-to person to help build and operationalize. I started now seeing almost peers where you have like a CRO or SVP of sales as well. And next to them is an SVP of sales ops. I mean, it makes sense. I, I mean, it's for PLG, like absolutely. Yeah. It makes complete sense. And can we like define what PLG looks like now? Is this the future of sales? Is PLG the apps? Like, I mean, obviously with nuance, but like, is that what buyers want? Yeah, I'll talk about PLG product-led growth as well as PLS product-led sales. So product-led growth feels like a buzzword all over Twitter and LinkedIn right now. But the simplest way is to think about the product itself as the leading mechanism for conversion, acquisition, upsell, expansion. So you can think about Slack, Calendly, Notion, Zoom, these tools where you sign up online, you use it, you get activated, you pay for it. Um, Product-led sales is really using that self-serve funnel of users that you've built from the product-led motion to then inform your sales motion. So I'm a sales rep at Zoom. I can see a bunch of users on the free trial or the free plan or the lowest pricing tier. I can use that information to figure out where I should go to convert them from the free plan to the paid plan or upsell or expand into the next tiers. How it's changing is that in the old days, you think of you know, sales bros like Corp, um, of traditional salespeople. The last of the Brohicans. <laughs> We're fighting, fighting the good Ooh. fight. You know, you're reaching out, steak and wine dinners, the golf, um, sort of kidding, sort of not. Finger gunning. Yeah, you know. finger gunning. Um, and now it's really more about you, the product can sell itself in the beginning, get users onboarded and activated, and then sales can engage when there's more opportunity. You were set to take a role at your mentor's early stage startup uh, when you were about to graduate from Stanford. Is that correct? Yeah. And then you thought, no, I'm actually just going to do it myself and start my own company. Yeah. So I um, had, I was really lucky to intern at Monte Carlo when they were series A. I think they're series D now. Um, is that a GSB for, company? Is it not? Is it, not? it is. The CTO it is, yeah, is GSB. Um, and Bar and Lior, CEO and CTO, uh, worked there, just kind of did the same thing I did as a data miner, showed up, figured out where they needed help, ending up setting up like V1 of a CRM and doing some sales opsy stuff. They only had one sales rep, um, but, and a little bit of just everything. And I loved working there. It was the definition of just do something, like just start implementing, learning and iterating. And so if I didn't start Pocus, I would have definitely explored opportunity work building out sales ops and working there at Monte Carlo. I definitely got the itch there to start something myself. Um, I think GSB also gives you a lot of confidence to start something because you're just so exposed to it. And you're like, all these people are starting things. And uh, if they can do it, like I want to dive in and try too. Um, and so I definitely got the itch and quickly met my co-founder and started ideating right after that. Can you talk about the, just briefly about the raise process and what, how does that even happen? I think people get way too distracted um, by fundraising and VC in the early days. I mean, of course, like you need some capital upfront to get you somewhere, but you can do a lot with nothing. Uh, we spent the first three months talking to 300 different salespeople and RevOps people and just learning and iterating building Figma mocks, selling fake things that were in Figma, <laughs> um, like just testing a bunch of different ideas. 
seeing what people would buy, even if it wasn't fully built out. Um, and from there, once we landed on this idea of what Pocus is, is a product-led sales platform. So we give sales teams access to product usage data to inform what opportunity sales are actually go after and how. And so we saw this broader vision well, of you know, how do sales and marketing and customer success and non-technical folks get access to data? And the answer is, it's really hard. And I saw that firsthand at DataMiner. And so when we started talking about this idea and pitching it and building Figma mocks, we had people literally being like, I would pay you 100K if you built this thing. And then from there, once you feel that pull um, from customers, quickly, you also talk to one VC when there's a real problem, real like need in the market, and you have founders that have experienced it before, and you're building a core team, and there's validation from your design partners that you're working with, that's when the VC funding can come more naturally rather than starting out just searching for VC funding. One thing I was going to ask that I think you've mentioned in previous interviews that was a motivation for starting your own company. First, did you ever think that you were going to start your own company when you went to Stanford or went out? No, I didn't know. And then also, like, what is the importance or significance of being like a female founder? Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't know starting a company was a thing. I think a lot of people, when they look at founders, they're like, these people have been training for it their whole life. Um, Someone once said, like, you can train to be in marketing, you can train to be in product, you can train to be in sales, you can also train to be figure out how to be a CEO and a leader and a founder. And it, like, I'm not just saying it's easy, you snap your fingers, it's the hardest job I've ever done. Um, but it is something that I didn't know was even an option. I was, you know, that random person in sales op- ops, Ross, <laughs> I, that's not really a career path to founding a company. Um, but when I got to Stanford, went initially, because I was just kind of fed up, honestly, about the lack of women in tech, both in consulting and then also in startups. And, uh, you know, the exact team I was working on, I was often on the exact offsites working for them. The only it's common, but oftentimes the only girl or the only woman. And um, so I got to Stanford, you know, did what everyone at GSB thought of, like, I'm going to be a female founder that invests in uh, or female investor that invests in female founders. And that's how I'm going to make my impact. And I ended up actually starting a fund for my class called the 21 Fund, where we raise money from our class and invest in our classmates. And uh, during that time, I was what I liked was actually getting in the weeds with founders, not the investing part. And I was thinking, where can I make an impact more? And it's really the building phase. When you look, there's no female founders in data and sales. Or there's not no, but there's very few. And um, that's kind of the motivation that keeps me going. Like, I want to take this thing all the way and get more female founders doing that as well. Um, And I also learned I would be a terrible VC. Um, And uh, I don't want to go back to sales ops necessarily. So guess I guess I'll become founder. (laughs) How would you describe salespeople after, you know, kind of witnessing them from an operations? So I've been working with salespeople at product-led companies for the past two years. Um, So think like Linear, Clockwise, Miro, Webflow. And it's some of the most data-driven and strategic salespeople I've ever met. I think in this world where you have sales at PLG, you really need to think about, okay, what is the data telling me? Where should I prioritize my time? And what's the next best action to take? And how do I make sure that we're 
you know, getting all the use cases rolled up into one motion or thinking through what's the right playbook to run. So I think that this new generation of salespeople have to be very data-driven and strategic. Are you a love-to-win person or a hate-to-lose person? Oh, I love to win. Who hates to lose? I fucking hate losing. <laughs> I fucking but like, hate aren't they the same? No. Are well, they so the, same? the way I think of it is just like winning to me is should be status quo. Like when I win, I'm not going to celebrate. I'm going to go shake someone's hand like deadpan. Uh, but if I lose, I'm a, I'm like, I'm so goddamn mad. I'm more on to the next thing. Winning is winning is business as usual. Losing is absolutely unacceptable. And I'm going to lose my shit behind closed doors. Anyways, Alexa, thank you I'm so much. Text Alexa. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next What's my last name, Rob? time. Grayball. Grable, it's Grable. <laughs> this was an interesting podcast. Thank you both so much. <laughs>